This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. This is uh, first time doing Sashin for some people. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe first time doing Genzo A Sashin for more people. Uh, we've done this some years in the past, and I know some have been here before to such an event. Genzoe Sashin is just, I feel like, a great opportunity to um, do a lot of zazen. Sashin means to gather the mind, collect the mind, which we do through a lot of zazen and silence and practicing together harmoniously. And we're combining that with uh, Genzo-e, a study of the Shobo Genzo of Dogen Zenji. So we have a chance to really settle into the present in a simple, open, uncontrived kind of way. And then we can also clarify what it means to sit in the present in open, uncontrived way. Buddha's practice has always had these two aspects of uh, settling, calming, unmoving presence and understanding or clarifying how things are. I think if we just sit, especially um, as we're beginning practice more, if we're just sitting, we can get really into the calming side. That's pretty challenging in itself, but um, we might not discover some of the subtleties of the teaching. And if we're just studying the teaching, but not um, sitting, we tend to uh, get into just complicated conceptual ideas about it. So I think this combination is is quite nice. I always appreciate um, retreats where there's there's uh, developing our understanding, which happens conceptually, and then bringing that into it. Um, a more experiential way of being through meditation. And uh, in our lineage, Dogen's Soto Zen, all those different schools and lineages of Buddhism, of course, have slightly different understandings. They have a lot in common, but... uh, each one is unique, that's the beauty of them, of the differences. 
So uh, Genzo Eisishin is a chance to really uh, explore together uh, the understanding of this particular lineage of Zen. Dogen Zenji. Does everyone know Dogen? The Japanese founder of this lineage in the 13th century has become kind of like, he's kind of like the spokesperson for, for our style of practice. Even though he was a long time ago, I think it's because it really, he was very creative and um, very true to the, to the tradition that came before him, but expressed it in new creative ways. And he wrote and spoke a lot that got recorded. So that's that, uh, and he brought the tradition to a new country of Japan. Um, and he's, uh, he's, I think, just one of those um, spiritual geniuses who was able to um, put things in a, in a new, fresh way that people could relate to, and also really emphasizing practice a lot also. So still, 800 years later, we still kind of define our style of practice through Dogen and also Keizan Zenji a few generations later are considered the kind of two kind of co-founders of Japanese Soto Zen. So uh, one way to look at Dogen is in this Genzo Eisishin. So Genzo is abbreviation of Shobo Genzo. Shobo Genzo is Dogen's great uh, masterwork, the true Dharma I treasury, the Shobo Genzo, which uh, is 95 fascicles or chapters on different topics, uh, hundreds of pages. It's kind of like the vision of Dogen in 95 different facets. The true Dharma I treasury. So Genzo is I treasury, like the eyeball treasury, the, the Dharma I, the way of seeing. Uh, and this, this collection of essays is like a treasury of this way of seeing things. And A in Genzo A means like assembly or gathering. So it's, a, it's an eyeball treasury gathering to collect the mind. Genzo A Sishin. And uh, apparently the, the first Genzo A Sishin in Japan uh, was in 1905, not that long ago, uh, although over a hundred years ago now, at Eheiji, the Dogen's uh, monastery in Japan. And uh, it was a time when all the different schools of Japanese Buddhism were kind of uh, defining themselves and trying to present the uniqueness of their own teachings. And uh, that Genzo-e, first Genzo-e was led by 
Okasotan Roshi, who was a, a Shogogenzo Dogen scholar and practitioner, um, one of the great ones of his time. And we have some kind of connection in our lineage here to Okasotan because uh, one of Okasotan's um, uh, I think it's like one of Okasotan's main disciples was uh, Nishiari Bokusan and one of Nishiari Bokusan's main disciples was Kishizawa Ian and one of Kishizawa Ian's main disciples was Shunryu Suzuki Roshi Suzuki Roshi um, had various teachers uh, his root teacher Gyokujin so on uh, when, we, when we chant the names of the lineage but uh, Kishizawa Ian was kind of like um, like uh, Suzuki Roshi's kind of Dogen studies teacher apparently so he and he lived nearby uh, Suzuki Roshi, and so was just fortunate he could attend a lot of sashins, maybe classes and teachings about Dogen. So Suzuki Roshi said he, his understanding of Dogen came through Kishizawa Ian. And Ishiari Bokusan before that, and Okasotan, the one who led this first Genzoe sashin at Eheji. Um, apparently 150 people attended and there were two lectures a day, like we're doing this weekend, but for 70 days <laughs> instead of three. And apparently they went through the whole 95 chapter of Shobogenzo in these 70 days. So that's, you know, less than, less than uh, one day per chapter. <laughs> so it's kind of overview, I think. So, I, I like this style where we have three days to go through two pages. Or like, <laughs> like ten hours or something to go through two pages. We can get thorough. <laughs> but uh, I think this is, this is a good essay for those new to Dogen and those not new to Dogen. It's, uh, I think it... It expresses important ideas in his teaching, kind of earlier teaching for Dogen. So there's a... Uh, <clears throat> Soto Zen has a constitution, like most organizations. It's a large organization, right, in Japan. It's like thousands of temples are part of Soto Zen. So the organization has this constitution, I don't know when it was written or who wrote it. It might have been around this time of like the 1900s. Uh, but at any rate, there's an English translation of the Soto Shu Constitution. I once found it in like buried in some pile of papers at Tassahara Library. So it's a long, it's a long, you know, organizational tract that talks about how all the temples are organized and the different ranks of priests and all these kinds of things. But at the very beginning of the, of the Soto Shu constitution, Soto Shu means the Soto school of Zen. And uh, like 
Article 1 designation. This religious organization shall be named Sotoshu. Probably Austin Zen Center has bylaws that have this kind of language. And, and uh, Article 2, the tradition is that Sotoshu has a tradition of being constantly engaged in transmitting the true Dharma of Shakyamuni Buddha, which has been handed down by successive ancestors through direct transmission from one mind to another. Maybe that's kind of like the mission statement of the organization. Article 3 is the, the doctrine, of the teaching of Soto Zen. Abiding by the true dharma of the Buddhas and ancestors, direct transmission, the Soto school doctrine is realization of just sitting, shikantaza, and this very mind is Buddha, sokushinze butsu. So, uh, I find that interesting that that's like the summary of this of our tradition is these two things. It's the, it's the, uh, the true dharma of the Buddhas and ancestors, direct transmission, but the, the Soto Zen uh, doctrine <laughs> or summary of teaching is the realization of just sitting, shikantaza, and this very mind, or mind itself, is Buddha. And I think a lot of us have heard of just sitting. It's kind of a... We think of... Maybe if someone asks, what do you think the Soto Shu main um, uh, transmission or teaching is? We might say, Shikantaza, just sitting. We we hear that a lot in Dogen Zen. But we don't often hear this other side. Mind itself is Buddha. And it may be that these are two names for the same thing. But uh, uh, if we say, this is really like somebody who wrote this constitution, probably a bunch of people helped write it and agree on it, decided, let's summarize our entire lineage into two aspects. Just sitting is maybe the kind of practical part, and uh, mind itself as Buddha is the kind of understanding part. We could say it the other way. Just sitting is the understanding of what's actually happening in and uh, mind itself as Buddha is the actual practice. So, um, therefore, this essay by this name is called Mind Itself as Buddha is, uh, is like, we could even say it's the centerpiece, it's, the, it's defining the understanding of this lineage. Y'all have a copy? Mind itself is Buddha. Or Soku Shinze Butsu. Those are the, the Chinese characters there for the, for the uh, title. Soku, going through the title here, is like a could be translated like immediately or 
here and now, or itself, or this very, roughly speaking in English. Shin is translated as mind or heart, which are kind of seen as the same thing in, in China and Japan. And here uh, yeah, I would propose there's mind can be many things, both in English and in um, in the old Buddhist languages. Like mind can mean like our thinking. Uh, it can mean our you know, sort of conceptual thinking, or it can mean like perception of objects. For example, many many different meanings. But here I would understand mind to be like big mind. Suzuki Roshi talks about big mind. That's um, not the thinking conceptual mind and not the perception of objects, but uh, but the sizeless, dimensionless, boundless, uh, space-like mind that includes everything within it, the all-inclusive mind. Buddha nature is another name for this. And uh, ze here means like um, is, or this, or indeed, something like that. And uh, butsu means Buddha. Transliteration of Buddha, and Buddha in Sanskrit means awake, the awakened one, uh, awakening, awakened understanding. Hard, kind of hard to define Buddha. So, uh, therefore, we say mind itself is Buddha, or this very mind is Buddha. Mind here and now is Buddha, in translation. And this um, Soku and Zei, like we chanted the Japanese Heart Sutra this morning, and there's that part that goes. Shiki soku zei ku ku soku zei shiki. Remember that part? And that's shiki is a form, and ku is emptiness. So shiki soku zei ku. It's the same soku and zei as soku shin zei butsu. So here they're they're together, but we we say form itself is emptiness. Shiki sokuzei ku, ku sokuzei shiki. Emptiness itself is form, so it's like, like, uh, like identity. It's kind of expressing that form itself is emptiness. It's like kind of the heart of the Heart Sutra. I think these sentences, a radical statement. It's not that form is empty. Our form has some quality of 
emptiness. Form itself is emptiness. Sokuze is really like expressing this kind of like um, equality or identity. Emptiness itself is form. So in that same uh, way, this phrase, mind itself is Buddha. They're like two names for the same reality. And Dokken begins this essay. What Buddhas and ancestors have maintained without exception is the mind itself is Buddha. Usually these Shobogenzo essays start with these these um, statements like that that say like, this is like the thing, this is like the most important Thing. what Buddhas and ancestors and Buddhas and ancestors is um, in Dogen's language means the Zen ancestors Buddhas I think the, over and over again Dogen says Buddhas and ancestors and I think it's, um, it's it's saying that Buddhas the awakened beings uh, of throughout space and time uh, is the kind of beginning of the tradition we call Buddhism or Buddha Dharma. And Shakyamuni Buddha is like our Indian founder. So we always have to connect it to the Buddhas. And then the ancestors is this, this lineage of teachers, particularly through, um, through India, but also through um, China and Japan, uh, that... Um, that carry on the, the practice and realization of Buddha. So, what the Buddhas and ancestors have maintained, without exception, is mind itself is Buddha. However, this particular expression was not known in India. It was first heard in China. So, that particular phrase does not come from like the Indian sutras, but uh, I would understand that the, the teaching, that understanding, was there from the get-go, from, from Buddha. Uh, but maybe Dogen's is off the bat saying, we're not going to look for like a, a sutra that says it exactly like this. It's a, it's a kind of a Chinese Zen um, teaching. But interestingly, all the Buddhas maintain it, even though this particular expression was not known in India. In China, they started expressing what the Buddhas in India were already maintaining, something like that. But even though this particular expression was not known in India, there are some quite similar expressions in India. For example, to hear some of the, the early teachings. Uh, the Flower Ornament Sutra, called the Avatamsaka Sutra, uh, one of the, the Mahayana, kind of great, uh, expansive vehicle scriptures, 
in India, very important um, teaching, especially for early Zen in China, the Flower Ornament Sutra, uh, says in chapter 20, page 452, in Thomas Cleary's translation, says, as mind is, so is Buddha. As is mind, so is Buddha. As is Buddha, so are living beings. Know that Buddha and mind are boundless in their essential nature. As is mind, so is Buddha. As is Buddha, so are living beings, all living beings. Know that Buddha and mind are boundless in their essential nature. So it doesn't say exactly Sokushinze Butsu, but it's pretty close. Also, the um, one of the classic uh, uh, quotes from this Flower Ornament Sutra is um, the three realms, which is uh, getting into lots of Buddhist technical stuff. Three realms just means all, like the entire array of sentient beings, all types of sentient beings in the human realm and in the celestial realms, all kinds of... And sentient being in Buddhism usually means beings that are kind of like stuck in samsara. Often the sentient beings is contrasted to Buddhas that are free from samsara. So these, the three realms, we could, we, or we could say, the entire um, uh, array of sentient beings is only mind. Everything in the realms of sentient beings is, uh, is only mind. And also, another, maybe most famous lines from this Flower Ornament Sutra is uh, the Buddha saying um, something like, Amazing! Amazing! Now I see that all sentient beings are endowed with the, the virtues and the knowing wisdom of all the Buddhas. But because of karmic obscurations and habitual um, confusion, they don't realize it. So I think all of these sayings are pointing in the direction of this very mind is Buddha. Another uh, Indian Indian teaching, so that's an Indian sutra. Then there's an Indian 
Um, and that sutta was probably around the year 100, kind of early, uh, early Mahayana teaching. The Buddha lived about 500 BC, so there were some centuries after him that, uh, that these types of teachings started to spring up in this world system. And uh, then a couple centuries after that sutra, in like the, the 300s, uh, the teacher Asanga, founder of what we call the, the Yogacara tradition, has this teaching um, called the Exposition of the Precious Seed, or the Precious Lineage or Family. Gotra in Sanskrit is, is it one of these names for Buddha nature. So this is the Ratna Gotra Vibhaga uh, attributed to Maitreya Buddha or, or Asanga. It's not it's clear exactly who wrote this, but it's, it's one of the more important, it's, it's like the most important Buddha nature treatise in India. Pretty early on too. Way before Zen came to China, this is like in the three hundreds. So um, Maitreya or Asanga um, says, just as space, with its character of non-conceptuality, is present everywhere, the space that's in the room right now is not a conceptual thing, right? space filling the room, just a space with its character of non-conceptuality is present everywhere. So the stainless space that is the nature of mind is omnipresent. Just as space with its character of non-conceptuality, physical space, is present everywhere, like this, the stainless basic element or basic space, this is where datu, which is another name for Buddha nature in this tradition, the stainless basic space or, or um, the basic element or the basic nature, that is the nature of mind, is omnipresent like space. Omnipresent means it's, it's everywhere. It's present everywhere. So it doesn't use the word Buddha, but it's saying that the nature of mind, it uses the same word mind, citta. The nature of this mind is uh, omnipresent, which is a little bit like, sounds a little bit like Buddha. If Buddha is all-inclusive uh, awakening with no limitations or boundaries, the nature of everyone's mind is actually like this, like space. This treatise goes on. Its general characteristic is that it pervades the flaws of sentient beings. So this, this space-like nature of mind pervades the, um, the kind of confusions, 
and um, afflictions and flaws of sentient beings. It pervades the qualities of bodhisattvas and it per- pervades the perfection of Buddha. This na- the nature of mind, and I think we're talking about our mind, everyone's mind, the, not exactly the mind, but the nature, the true boundless nature of the mind, the, the citta prakriti in Sanskrit, it's like the nature, the essence of mind, is, is omnipresent and it pervades the mind, this, this, na- this omnipresent nature of mind, obviously because it's omnipresent, it pervades the greed, hate, and delusion of sentient beings. It pervades the, um, the compassionate qualities of bodhisattvas, and it pervades the perfect awakening of Buddhas. And that's kind of in the same spirit, I think, of mind itself as Buddha. The nature of mind pervades all sentient beings and Buddhas. This, this treatise, a few verses later, says, uh, lacking causes and conditions, lacking uh, being constructed or being aggregated from different pieces, and lacking arising, ceasing, and abiding, the nature of mind resembles space. So, just like space um, doesn't have causes and conditions, space has always been space and will always be space. We're talking about, we're not talking about air. <laughs> That's oxygen molecules, right? And they might not be around forever. But space, uh, because it's not a thing, um, cannot be destroyed. Everything else, I think, is impermanent and could be destroyed. But space, is, it wasn't created in the first place, so it can't be destroyed. So it has no causes and conditions. It's... Um, Everything else within space arises depending on causes and conditions, but space doesn't. Space is unconditioned, and it's, um, it's not constructed, and it doesn't arise, it doesn't cease, and it doesn't abide. The nature of mind resembles space, Asanga says. the luminous nature of the mind, the prabhasvara citta, the, the luminous or clear um, radiant light, the luminous nature of mind is completely unchanging, just like space. It's not afflicted by uh, added on defilements or afflictions or stains. It's totally pure, always. Such as craving born from false imagination. The luminous nature of mind is completely unchanging, just like space. It's not um, afflicted or hindered by um, temporary 
stains such as craving born from false imaginations. These are some Indian uh, ways of talking about uh, the space-like nature of mind. There's probably many more, too, in in India, Uh, but these are a few. But as Dogen says, um, this particular expression, Sokushin Zebutsu, was not known in India. It was first heard in China by some Zen folks in China in the 8th century. And um, I don't know for sure the first time this phrase was used. We could, we could, we could search the, um, the digital Chinese canon database for this term. I didn't do that before this. But from what I can tell, from what I found so far, it may be that the first person to say it. <laughs> Actually, that's the Japanese way of saying it. So it would sound a little different in China. <laughs> but these, this particular phrase, it may be um, this teacher, Hui Zong, national teacher. Hui Zhong, who is quoted later in the essay. Dogen doesn't say that. And, and, uh, because we do have this, this um, translation by Andy Ferguson, his, his book of all these Chinese ancestors. Um, on national teacher Hui Zhong. National teacher means that some of these Zen teachers were teachers of the emperors. They, they hung out in the in that imperial palace grounds and like sometimes the emperors kind of like locked them in kind of forced them to come teach and they were usually great teachers that's the because the emperor had the choice of inviting anybody in there so uh, national teacher Hui Zhong was a disciple of the sixth ancestor of Zen so that's like early early Chan in China. Um, Hui Zhong lived like 675 to 775. And uh, he said, well, here's this one story. A monk asked Hui Zhong, what is Buddha? And the national teacher said, mind is Buddha. And uh, I don't have the Chinese here, so I don't know if it's Sokushin Zebutsu, it might just be Shin Zebutsu or something. You might not say mind itself is Buddha, but it might be that. It's pretty close though. What is Buddha? And Hui Zhang said, mind is Buddha. And the monk asked, does his mind have defilements? Afflictions, meaning like greed, hate, and delusion, and confusion. And the national teacher said, defilements by their own nature drop off. And the monk asked, do you mean that we then shouldn't cut them off? And the national teacher said, cutting off 
defilements is called the second vehicle. When defilements do not arise, that is called nirvana. Early Chinese Chan teaching about mind itself is Buddha. Mind is Buddha, but then maybe this monk saying, but um, it seems like my mind is full of greed, hate, and delusion. It has these defilements or afflictions, we call them. Uh, does the mind have those? And the national teacher says, these afflictions, like greed, hate, and delusion, by their own nature, drop off drop away they um which we could understand to mean like when we um the more deeply we understand that mind is like this uh boundless space in which uh greed hate and delusion are arising and ceasing then we see that everything that's arising within it must also have the nature of this space like mind and therefore the uh, the greed, hate, and delusion, by their very nature, drop away. When we see what they are, when we see um, what their true nature is, they can't maintain themselves. They drop off. Can I ask a question? Yes. What did he mean when he said cutting, cutting them off is the second vehicle? Is yeah, yeah. Well, no, the, yeah, the monk asked, do you mean then that we shouldn't cut them off? Which I understand would be like, we shouldn't um, try to get rid of them. Yeah. You're saying these, def- these defilements drop off by their own nature, the monk says. Does that mean we shouldn't try to get rid of them? And the national teacher says, cutting off defilements, we're trying to get rid of them, is the in quotes, second vehicle. So, um, I don't know. I've never heard this phrase before. But uh, I take it to mean, like, um, already at this time, people were talking about the one vehicle. The Lotus Sutra talks about the one vehicle is the, um, you could say it's like the the vehicle is like a practice path. Uh, The one vehicle is the all-inclusive vehicle that includes all practice paths. It's kind of related to the all-inclusive mind here. So, um, but cutting off defilements, uh, trying to get rid of them, is kind of like a second vehicle. Not the one vehicle, but the the next one. An extra, extra, yeah, it's kind of extra. Yeah, whereas within the one vehicle, everything is um, complete. And, uh, but if we're trying to fix something in the one vehicle, that fixing becomes a second vehicle. That's how I would understand. Mm-hmm. Could that be related to the, the sort of teaching of the three nens? So the, so the first nen is kind of immediate experience, and the second nen being a sort of playing with that experience or commentary. Mm-hmm. And so the act of trying to yeah. get rid of something already creates this duality. Yeah. What's the third one? The third one's like, like a third-hand source. It's like a commentary on a commentary. Yeah, like maybe sometimes we, we have a feeling of um, anger or something, and then the commentary says, oh, stop that, Kokyo, is the second. And the third is like, oh, I'm trying to stop it again. Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to stop trying to get rid of it. Yeah. 
stop trying to stop it, yeah. The third vehicle. So, um, so that's it. That's a early teaching on um, Mind is Buddha uh, by Hui Zhang. And uh, so Hui Zhang is a disciple of Six Ancestor. Six Ancestor Hui Nung, the Platform Sutra, people may know is like, that's just kind of like the, the birth of like the flourishing of um, Zen in China. First kind of like longer sort of Zen writing that was really, um, I think the writing was trying to kind of establish it as this new movement and it worked. And so all Zen down to, down to 2019, Soto Zen, Rinzai Zen, Obaku Zen is a little school still going in Japan and China and Korea. All Zen descends from the sixth ancestor. After the sixth ancestor, it started branching into different lineages. So, um, so this is the early days. Uh, so Hui Zhang was a, a student of the sixth ancestor. Uh, Nan Yue was another student of the Sixth Ancestor. And then most important student of Nanyue is Matsu. So it's almost the same time as Wei Zhang is Matsu. And Matsu, or Baso in Japanese, was most known for this teaching mind itself as Buddha. I think that uh, maybe even the... Uh, you know, in these days in China, they say, who came up with this phrase, mind itself is Buddha? They would probably say Matsu. He's, it's, like, it's like his trademark teaching. And since their lives overlapped, like Matsu lived um, uh, 709 to 788, and Hui Zhang was 675 to 775, so their lives are at the same time. So it's hard to know which of them said it first. <laughs> They said it around the same time. There a lot of, you know, people were practicing together and these teachings were, were, people were talking about them and they were spreading around. So, uh, um, Matsu was one of the most amazing Chinese Zen ancestors. He's not in our Soto lineage. Uh, he's the, the later Rinzai lineage, um, sprouted forth from Matsu. But uh, Dogen praises Matsu, and in a way he, he is included in our, uh, in our lineage because um, from the sixth ancestor, these we call now Soto and Rinzai lineages branch out, and then they, um, they come back together at Dogen. Dogen received both. And if you have received the precepts, you get the lineage documents, and uh, at, at least in Suzuki Roshi's um, uh, tradition, we include both of those lineages. So, so Matsu is actually on our and and our um, kind of lineage documents, which I love that fact because I love Matsu and Baijiang and Linji, all these. All these guys are, are are included 
we emphasize more the the Soto side, but they're all included. So, just a little note there that not all Soto Zen lineages do have those two sides. Like I, uh, a teacher I practice with in Japan, um, Tangen Harada Roshi, is a Soto Zen teacher, and uh, and I also received the precepts from him. And that paper just has the um, just as the Soto line. So I think there's different styles within Soto Zen. So I just, I like that Suzuki Roshi's tradition is really, is this all, all inclusively, includes all these Chinese um, amazing characters. So um, Matsu was um, maybe what Dogen's thinking of when he's saying this phrase started in China. This is a book called Sun Face Buddha. Uh, it's like the record of Matsu. And it's looking through that recently. This is one of the great, great books. The introduction is very nice. Um, talking about the early, uh, early history of Chan in China. Uh, kind of overview. And this, this um, author, who's a, who's a practitioner, a, Chinese, a monk in the Chinese tradition, says that um, that his understanding, and I would agree with him, is that the early early Chan in China was somewhat influenced by, um, of course, all these Indian teachings, uh, like the middle way of Nagarjuna, the emptiness teachings, and the um, mind-only teachings of Asanga and Vasubandhu, but especially... Uh, he feels that the early Chan was most um, most came forth from the um, maybe slightly lesser known Indian teaching of Buddha nature or Tathagata Garbha, sutras and treatises um, like this one that I was reading from Asanga is considered the Tathagata Garbha tradition, which is, Tathagata Garbha means like the um, the heart of the Buddha. So sometimes gets translated as Buddha nature. A sli- you know, it's all, they're all very similar teachings, but um, this Tathagatagarbha, Buddha nature um, teachings really emphasize this, the, the kind of boundless, pure, space-like nature of mind, the luminous space-like nature of mind, whereas, um, say, like mind only doesn't exactly emphasize that. I would say it's about mind, but it's it's more talking about how mind is um, is confused and distorted. So Buddha nature teachings are emphasizing the more like the purity aspect, like mind is mind and the nature of mind and Buddha nature are um, inherently uh, pure and Buddha-like. It's just that they're temporarily obscured by our thinking and so on. So it's very like it's a very positive message. I, I would even maybe go so far as to say, within like kind of sort of Indian Buddhist philosophy system, I'd say these Buddha nature teachings are like 
greatest news. They're like, they're like, they're very positive. They're saying all sentient beings have this true, totally pure, complete, already perfect nature. You don't find it, that kind of thing really so much in, in the other Indian teachings, I don't think. Emptiness, maybe you could say, but it's not so positive, right? Saying none of it's real. Right? This is <laughs> this is more saying that like there is this this um, radiant uh, nature that uh, that actually like the Buddha's boundless love and compassion are also like inherent qualities in here in this Buddha of this Buddha nature. But they're, you know, it's temporarily um, hidden. Yes. When you say <clears throat> luminous nature, yeah. Kind of a process of yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking out the window, and, and my mind is on that tree limb out there, and the mm. sun's light. Yeah. So, in some sense, you could say, my mind just taking on the luminous nature of that, mm. that tree limb out there. Yeah. So if you say the mind has a luminous nature, are you talking about wherever it goes, there is that sort of... Uh, well, like sometimes it could be luminous in a positive sense, but it also could be luminous in a negative way. Well, thanks for this question, yeah. Luminous is not that clear um, a term, prabhashvara. My understanding is that it's really um, like a metaphor, it's not actually like we're not talking about physical light. So, so um, last year did, when I was here, did we talk about radiant light? <coughs> so, 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 so in there, Dogen actually tries making that point too that this is not the the light, the type of light that like gets sent out in a light beam and so on. It's um, it's a it's something hard, very hard to talk about because it's so subtle and it's not physical. So light is is a nice metaphor. I was a nice analogy, a nice. Um, it's it's pointing. In, they're trying to describe this nature of mind, like light and also space. It's not literally physical space, but space is a really nice metaphor. Also, they're getting very close. I think both light and space, and the combinations space filled with light, like the radiant sky, is um, a nice image too. But so this kind of um, luminosity is like um, just the, uh, my understanding is, it's just like the, um, the cognizant aspects of mind. So there's a lot of talk about um, emptiness in the Buddhist tradition. It means like everything, it, uh, or mind is empty of anything to be able, anything graspable there. It's um, it's not this and it's not that. It's you know um, our Buddha nature is not form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness. Buddha is not those things. So there's a lot of negation. Um, but then we say, but also like um, the table is also empty. The, table is not what we think it is. It's not really a, uh, a um, um, some, some actual substantial thing. It's just, it's just a collection of parts that we label table. And so our, 
is um, a Buddha, the way we think about a Buddha. But, so we can deconstruct things into emptiness in this way, but that's all kind of negation. And we say, we can deconstruct this table into emptiness, and we can deconstruct um, a person into emptiness, a sentient being into emptiness. But there's a little difference between the deconstructed person and the deconstructed table. And that difference, we could say, is this light, this luminosity, that the table doesn't have a cognizance. But sentient beings, their mind cannot be found or grasped, and yet this mind is cognizant, or it has a a knowing quality. Even before we get into conceptualizing, like this first nan you're talking about, is before there's conceptualization, there's just... um, there's a kind of, uh, that's a quality of mind, is it not? Maybe the main quality we think of with mind is that it can know things, it's cognizant. And a way to just talk about this cognizance is luminosity, metaphorically. Because, um, I think because in a way that's like light, um, light illuminates things, uh, Light makes things known. In a dark room, if you, if you send a beam of light onto um, a flower in a, the dark room, the flower is like illuminated by that light. It's kind of known. It's not exactly known, right? but, but it's similar to the way the mind illuminates things, knows things. But the light is not so much the light that we see when, when there's physical light during the daytime. It's um, even with our eyes closed in the pitch black, like uh, if our eyes are closed now, uh, you could say nothing's being illumined but with physical light, but this kind of um, luminosity of mind is radiantly bright with our eyes closed. We may say it looks black, but there's a, there's a knowing quality, is there not, with our eyes closed? And even... Uh, when there's no sound, and there's no taste, there's no smell, and maybe in very settled zazen, when there's like almost no thinking at all, just total stillness, like nothing's happening, there's maybe no sense of time or space, like, but we don't say there's nothing left, because there's still always this luminosity, there's a, there's a, um, there's a cognizant knowing quality. Almost like, almost, maybe it gets a little um, too um, much to say, but almost like, it's like the sense of being alive. It's a little bit abstract to speak that way, but like, there's a, we, have, we all have, no matter what's happening, we have this sense of being alive that pr- probably, as far as we know, the table doesn't have the sense of being alive. We are empty, this mind is empty of any graspable qualities, the table is empty of any graspable qualities, but we have the sense of being alive that the table doesn't have any, because that's the luminosity of mind. Something like that. So, uh, we'll we'll keep exploring this. So, Matsu... 
means ancestor ma. That was his like family name. It means horse actually. So he's horse ancestor. In the record of Matu, Matu once said to the assembly, All of you should trust that your mind itself is Buddha, that this mind is identical with Buddha. Maybe that's the first time this phrase was used, if it wasn't the national teacher. All of you should trust, please trust that your mind itself is Buddha, that this mind is identical with Buddha. The great master Bodhidharma came from India to China and transmitted the one mind teaching of the Mahayana, the great vehicle, so that it can lead you all to awakening. Fearing that you will be too confused and will not trust that this one mind is inherent in all of you, Bodhidharma used the Lankavatara Sutra to seal sentient beings' mind ground. So, um, <laughs> according to this, it's like Bodhidharma came to teach that um, your mind, which is one mind, there is only one mind, but we can call it your mind, too, and that it's identical with Buddha. But um, fearing that we won't trust this, he needed some like backup proof. So he brought this Lankavatara Sutra. It's kind of this, this, I think maybe all religions have this kind of thing. We need scriptural proof. <laughs> Which is like kind of funny if you think about it, because what does that mean? It's like somebody wrote it. Somebody, even if you go back to the Buddha, if you say Shakyamuni Buddha, still he just it was a human who spoke it. But I guess we, the founders of, of religions, we we say, we call that scripture. I guess, although Christianity, it's not a lot of the scripture, is the disciples of Jesus, quoting him, talking about him. But I think it's like the early kind of root teachings, and you know. I think there's, it's nice. It's nice to connect, um, to connect to tradition, and uh, I think that's what makes a, a lineage. Part of what makes a lineage is um, there's so much evolving in this world, and um, and we want to be creative too, and and uh, so within that, how can we ex- keep things fresh and new? and creatively express some helpful teachings, but without, like, deviating off uh, a tradition. And I think it's almost like um, an exercise, you could say, that the Zen ancestors had of, like, let's see if we can do that. We have have this, like, um, uh, almost like um, these guidelines or, like, um, we're on this track Let's see if we can not fall off the track. On one side of the track would be like, we're just repeating this old stuff and it's, you know, it's not even in our experience and it's, it's, it's getting kind of stale and well, our culture is so different from India, so people will start to lose interest. No, we got to keep it fresh. And then the other side we can fall off of like, 
let's just, um, you know, something that's similar to Buddhism, but like uh, maybe different, similar but different. And what's more important is that it's fresh and new, so it doesn't have to be exactly what the Buddha said, and then we fall off, then we lose, we become something else. Right? That's the challenge um, for all of us, maybe, is to, uh, to um, stay true to tradition. And it gets kind of complex sometimes, and stay fresh and new. And I think that's what this essay is partly about, right? Dogen is saying, mind itself as Buddha. Wow, what an amazing, pure, simple, straightforward statement. And then he's getting into all these misunderstandings <laughs> of, of how we might think of this phrase. So, um, Bodhidharma brought in the Lankavatara Sutta, which is a good one. It's one of the, the Buddha nature sutras and also kind of mind-only sutras. I think I once did some teachings on Lankavatara Sutta here some years ago. Do you remember that? What, like five years or a while back. Did some classes on that. Um, it's associated with Bodhidharma and early, um, early Zen. Uh, Matsu goes on, Therefore, in the Lankavatara Sutra, Mind is the essence of all the Buddha's teachings. No gate is the Dharma gate. And then he quotes, Those who seek Dharma should not seek for anything. Or those who, you know, who want to get the Dharma should not want to get anything. Outside of mind, there is no other Buddha. Outside of Buddha, there is no other mind. His, really, this is his kind of Matsu's trademark thing, mind and Buddha. So, Matsu is maybe most known for these two phrases, mind itself is Buddha, and um, ordinary mind is the way. It's another one you might have heard. Actually, very similar. There's even calligraphy around Austin Zen Center. I've seen some Chinese calligraphy calligraphy that says ordinary mind is the way. So it's Matsu's teaching is just like floating around on the walls of the Zen center. <laughs> That's how 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 important Matsu's teaching is, yeah. Um, when you say ordinary mind, it sounds like you're talking about a different mind. Yes, well, yes. Mind is well, we were about to hear that. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so here's Matsu. He says, if one wants to know the way, the way is like the Tao, the true awakening. If one wants to know the way directly, ordinary mind is the way. What is meant by ordinary mind? No activity, no right or wrong, no grasping or rejecting, neither impermanent nor permanent, without worldly or holy. So that might be, that be like, oh, that's not what I thought ordinary mind was. <laughs> so um, I think that's a nice, that's a nice, important teaching of Matsu because um, I, I imagine a lot of people have heard this ordinary mind is the way. And I think that I have heard it interpreted. Um, this is an example of what we're just talking about, right? 
people hear that phrase, but they, then they don't go back to the Matsu defining what it means. And they say, ordinary mind is just my greed, hate, and delusion. And so my greed, hate, and delusion is, um, is the way. <laughs> it's easy to interpret it that way, I think. And in some sense, if we get more into these teachings, we might be able to unpack how, well, we already heard a little bit about the essence or the nature of these afflictions is pure. But that's a more subtle teaching. Um, and I think, why is, it, why is that called ordinary mind? Why is it that no activity, no right or wrong, no grasping and rejecting, neither permanent nor impermanent, without worldly or holy? That sounds like an extraordinary mind to me. Why is that called ordinary mind? Um, or another translation of it is um, everyday mind. Because it's always there. Yes. Yeah, it's always with us. Exactly. Yeah. Heijo shin is the um, is the Japanese way of saying uh, ordinary mind. Um, Jimi Hendrix wrote a song about it actually. Mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix. He, yeah, about Heijo shin. Is it helpful to make a distinction between like the function of mind and then the sort of content of mind? that the function of mind, which kind of is happening all the time, is every day, is somehow... Um, or uh, sometimes function gets contrasted with essence, mm. essence and function. Mm. Um, in, in Chinese um, Buddhism and other, and Taoism, I think, too. Um, like, the unchanging essence or nature is like you know, without grasping or rejecting either permanent or impermanent, not worldly or holy. It's like, it's like the empty, um, boundless essence, like space is like the essence. And then the function is like the way that it works in the world. And, and the contents, I would say a little bit more like the function, um, the activity yeah. is the things that are happening, you could say, within the space um, of mind, thoughts are arising, for example. This is, this is a kind of, I think, model for describing our experience that, that, that we could try out for this session. It might be like, I never thought of like, my mind as like space and with thoughts arising within it. So, and again, it's, these are just descriptions of the indescribable. But I think that is a very interesting description to check out in your own, in your zazen, or right now, to um, to see if we can relate to our experience as um, as there's this kind of uh, space like space like means without edges means boundless uh, and also invisible, but like this like a big space of awareness and it's bright empty space. It's luminous because it's knowing. And then within this space, just like within physical space, there's all this stuff, like all of us, and tables, and, and chairs, and people are um, arising within this space, are appearing within this space. Can we, can we try out this, almost like a model of our own experience, that there's a big space of awareness, or big mind, 
and within it, within the space, um, thoughts are arising and cease. Their, and they cease back into. They arise and they dissolve back into the space. Emotions arise and dissolve back into the space. Um, you know, craving and grasping and aversion are are um, kind of mental um, experiences that are rising within the space. And I say within the space because they're, um, they are known by this space-like mind. The, the mind is just um, aware of a thought arising and the thought ceasing. Can you relate to that? That kind of image of your experiences are rising and ceasing within um, this kind of unbounded, edgeless space, undefinable space called that here we're calling mind. This is maybe a little strange if you haven't related to it this way before because you might feel like, I never thought of my space, my mind is like edgeless and all-inclusive. I think of my mind as like maybe a little sphere living in my head or something. <laughs> Like, like, a, like a beach ball. <laughs> Maybe there's still arising within this little beach ball, but, but it's, isn't it within my head, for example? I think a lot of us think like mind is within our head. I think that's a kind of a... I think... I don't know if it's exactly a modern influenced um, view. I think it was around in the old days too, but I think modern science like congeals this kind of non-Buddhist view, I would say, that like mind is like inside our head. <laughs> Modern science says because because like brain science, like they say mind is like a product of the physical brain. So like mind is sort of like electrical energy happening in our head. That's something we've learned from an, from this other religion called modern science. I think in the, before modern science, like Indian spirituality, where they thought of mind quite differently, I think even then people probably had some sense, probably not as strong, but probably had some sense that mind was located in the head because our sense organs are all arranged on our face. So it feels like, it feels like um, the, the kind of witness of our sensory experience is located behind the sense faculties. I think even before science came in, I think we'd say it feels like behind the eyes there's a seer, and that's mine, but behind the ears there's a hearer, behind the nose and the tongue, and already you got four senses, all very similar place. It starts becoming very convincing that behind all of those, Within this space, that's where it's all happening. But, um, but these spiritual traditions would say, that's kind of an illusion. There is a brain, so-called brain in here, but, um, but there's, no, there's no direct evidence that the mind, especially like space-like boundless awareness, is a product of electrical activity in the brain. I might say, there is a lot of evidence for that. But uh, I would say there's, there's a lot of evidence that there's a correlation between 
the brain and the um, awareness and mind, there's definitely a correlation. But there's no evidence that the brain is primary and the source of the mind. It could be the other way around. But that's we're so used to this one way of thinking that uh, it's pretty hard to open to this new way. Did, did you have a question? Um, well, when you were talking about, you know, that um, to, to try that, yeah. uh, is that what is being referred to as mind-observing objects of mind? Or is that something completely different? Um, it could be. It could be related. Like, but I think often, if we use that language, we say mind observing objects of mind. I would say the, when I hear that statement, the model of trying to understand my own experience seems then that the object of mind, say like this, the visual object of this watch, is over here, and like mind observing that, it feels like then the experience of the seen watch is like out here and the mind is in here. It seems like there's like, because of the eyes, Mm -hmm. again, it feels like mind is observing objects. It feels like, in in one way or another, it feels like the object is outside of the mind, doesn't it? At least for me, when I hear... I guess I think of it more as when you're sitting in and a thought arises Mm -hmm. that... If you capture that as it's arising, then that's mind observing objects of mind. Mm, okay. Because it's a thought that arose in yeah. your mind, mm-hmm. and then there's the part of you observing that thought. Yeah, yeah, so that's an interesting example. We talk about objects of mind. A thought is a little different than the watch, right? The thought actually does feel like it's arising within. A mind. It's easier to see it. That we don't actually think the thoughts happening out there. Right. So it's a. I th- that's right. If if uh, mind observing objects of mind, it often does feel like the thought is arising within the mind. But whereas this object of mind, like a the physical senses, like a color or a sound, um, those are harder to see that they're happening within. Uh, that space of mind. They seem like the mind is being directed outwards towards the object that's outside of it. So I think with... So that's a, that's a great um, uh, example of how we could practice with... In Zazen, we could feel like, okay, I'm, I'm attending... I'm trying on this model of experiences. Objects of mind are arising within it. So here's a thought arising within it and another thought arising, and a feeling is arising within the mind, and ceasing within the mind, and I'm going along like that, and then a dog barks, and it's like, but that didn't arise in this space. That came from out there. So we could say, now can we bring it, now can we see how actually, in this new way of thinking, it's putting aside our usual way of thinking about how sound waves work and things like that. Just the, the direct experience of hearing the sound, then can we open to, actually it's kind of, I can, I can shift my way of hearing to now hear as if the sounds are arising within the space of mind, as well as thoughts and feelings. And we can, we can um, 
mind is very flexible, right? So we can, in, in, especially in zazen, so in, we can kind of try out. It really seems like the coughing person or the dog or the air conditioner is sound is um, is happening outside the mind, and the mind is kind of going going outwards to meet it. But could it be happening within? How exactly? Um, the more we meditate deeply on our own experience, the harder it is to to understand how sound can be arising. The experience of hearing can be arising within the mind. So I think these kinds of meditations help us open to the kind of like the awe of just being alive. That's one of the nice things about this. Is like, it's amazing that sound can ha- can the, the luminosity of mind, which is this knowing cognizant capacity of this empty space, this emp- this um, luminous knowing, this empty light, is uh, is possible. It's actually this is our experience. No, it's really like this. There's there's sounds and colors happening. Amazing. It's just very ordinary. That's another maybe aspect of ordinary because it's very ordinary. But like we don't we, we get so caught up in the, in the, our you know activities that we forget how awesome it is just to be alive and that a mind is possible. So, just a little more from Matsu. Finish this section. Matsu says, um, all dharmas, or all phenomena, are mind phenomena. All names are mind names. The myriad phenomena are all born from mind. Mind is the root of myriad phenomena. That's what we've been talking about. The myriad things are born from mind, but we might think the mind gives birth to them and then sends them out. The mind mind projects a table outside of itself. I think the mind-only tradition talks a little bit more about projection, so it's a slightly different model. It could be could sometimes be seen as a slightly different model. The mind projects things that seem to be outside itself. This is more like the mind gives birth to things within itself. Again, we're not talking about within the head. We're talking about within this big space. Uh, the myriad things are born from this big mind. Matsu says, uh, the mind can be spoken of in terms of these two aspects, uh, birth and death, and suchness. The mind as suchness is like a clear mirror which can reflect images. The mirror symbolizes mind. The images symbolize the myriad phenomena. If the mind grasps at phenomena, then it gets involved in external causes and conditions, which is the meaning of birth and death. If the mind does not grasp at phenomena, 
that is suchness. So here we're talking about mind has these two aspects. We've been talking more about the suchness aspect, the, the boundless aspect that includes everything. But mind can be spoken of in terms of suchness, but also in terms of birth and death, in terms of arising and ceasing. Birth and death is also a name for samsara, like the cycle of suffering. So the mind as suchness, that's this big mind, the space-like mind, is also like a clear mirror, is another image. Mind is like space, mind is like radiant light, and here Matsu says, the mind as suchness is like a clear mirror which can reflect images. The mirror is the mind, and the images are all phenomena or experiences. If the mind grasps at these experiences, then it gets involved in external causes and conditions, and that's the meaning of birth and death. If the mind doesn't grasp, or we could say if the mirror doesn't grasp at the reflections on the mirror, then that's suchness. If the mind, if if the mind mirror is just receiving the images uh, as itself, the images are not separate from the mind. And, uh, the images are not separate from the mirror, and uh, and yet the mirror is the unchanging suchness, and the images are changing phenomena. They're they're not separate, and yet. One's still and unmoving, and one is a bunch of changing stuff. So that's why this is a really nice metaphor, I think, also, the mirror. So there's a mirror-like aspect of the mind, and then all the reflections on the mirror are also aspects of mind. And if the mirror part of the mind grasps the reflections, then that's birth and death. So there's some stories of uh, Matsu. And we can continue this afternoon. And so, um, because we have all this zazen, because it's sashin, it's such a great chance to like explore the things that we're talking about here in zazen. So. Uh, the first day of Sashin. Is everybody here for the whole three days? I'll be gone on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to leave a little earlier on Sunday. Oh, but a couple of days at least, yeah. So you can, you know, keep deepening it. And so maybe the first day like this, we're really settling, we're letting go of, of, um, of all the concerns of our usual daily life as much as we can during Sashin. We kind of enter this world and for the benefit of all beings. We temporarily let it all go so we can really um, explore how things are. We'll take it up again in a few days. The, the world will be waiting for us. <laughs> so, so for this time, we use you know, the breath and the body to settle our thinking mind and the, the simple presence of breathing. And then uh, as we start to uh, do that, settle more and more deeply, then we can start to... like. Um, explore that kind of like the breath is one of the objects of what do we call it? Object, 
objects of mind. The breath is an object of mind. We can start to explore. Can we explore the breath, the, the sensation of breath arising and ceasing in this space? We might not usually think of, we're like, no, I'm just following the breath in the belly. And we might even have some sense that I, up in the head, am attending to the, to the sensation down here. But what about more like, I am the big space <laughs> in which there's, there's, in the middle of this vast space, there's this sensi- kind of pulsating sensation of breath happening in the center of space. Kind of like, try on that, um, see, that way of breathing.